When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. Thank you for listening to this Podcast One production. Now available on Apple Podcasts, Podcast One, Spotify, and anywhere else you get your podcasts. Hey guys, Jay Cutler. Started a new podcast called Uncut with Jay Cutler. Most of you know me from the NFL, some of you have seen me on Instagram, and some of you know me from the reality TV world. Each week I'm taking you along with me as we discuss football, trending topics, and whatever's going on in my life each week. I'm bringing along people that are special in my life, former teammates, friends, and some new people that I like and respect. That's what you're supposed to do, right? Podcasting? I think I'm doing this right. Can't wait to get started with you. Go subscribe now. Uncut with Jay Cutler, Apple Podcasts, Podcast One, and Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. Welcome to Real GM Radio. I am Daniel Rue, your host, and so happy to have you with us for this week's episode. After the, let's call it intermission with uh, the over-under series with Arturo Goletti, we're back to the division capsules and focusing this week on the Southwest Division with my guests, as they have been, thankfully, the last few years, Jonathan Charks and Rob Mahoney of The Ringer. Love talking with both of them. Conversation runs a little bit over an hour. Lots of really interesting stuff here as we kind of put our thoughts together on these five teams. Hope you really enjoy it. Well, thank you guys so much for coming on. Thanks for having us on. We're doing a little group chat on the Real GM Radio. It's great. <laughs> I know moonlighting over here. Yeah. It's a, it's a different kind of crossover, especially because Jonathan and I used to work together at Real GM. And um, the, the, the Southwest is a really interesting division. I hadn't really thought of it as a collective whole until I was doing a little bit of prep for this. And I, I, I like to start this with a question. And generally, I'll... I'll, I'll I'll couch it with this. I like to talk about it in terms of talent in, talent out. So not necessarily the passage of time or injuries. We can get into those things with these teams, of course. But I like to kind of, the one way of thinking about the offseason that just transpired is just, and we can start with Jonathan on this, of who do you think of this division got better and who do you think got worse? Yeah, it's interesting. There's been a lot of change in the last year, right? Like for the first time and so like the Rockets and the Spurs are both like rebuilding. And I would say, and I would say the Mavs are probably in their own category. And you had this really weird thing with the Pelicans and the Grizzlies where even though Memphis was better than New Orleans last year, Memphis made the long-term trade versus New Orleans making the short-term trade. So I'd say I put in like three buckets. Like you have the Mavs in their own tier and you kind of have the Grizzlies and the Pelicans in the middle. And for the first time in like, I don't even know, 15, 20 years, you have Houston and San Antonio both like officially rebuilding now. This might be the most, 
I don't know if depressing is the right word. In all the years we've been doing these Southwest previews together, the three of us, this is probably the most underwhelming year for the Southwest division on the whole. Like it's it's a lot of teams that are same ish. Yeah, there's a lot of there's year. a lot of stability, which is yes. which is like even the teams that are like the teams that are good, like the the Mavericks, they largely stayed stable. I mean, changing coach we'll get into, like that's a that's yeah. a significant shift for them. But yeah, okay, they you know, the Mavericks lost Oh god, who now I'm trying to remember who they who they let who they let go, but then they got Reggie Bullock. Oh, Josh Richardson. They traded him to the yeah. Celtics. And and then they and they got Reggie Bullock. It's like, okay, you know, like that's it's not seismic. It is it is interesting and it will affect the way they play. Um and but one of the things that I think is encouraging about the Southwest, which is distinctly not true in some of the other divisions, is that you know, getting better or getting worse from a talent perspective isn't necessarily the whole ball game. And so, like, for Houston in particular, like, I actually think Houston got better from a talent perspective, partially because I really like Daniel Tice. But they might get—I think they'll be worse on the floor. But I think that's a good thing for the franchise. Like, I, it, right. I was concerned with them, just like I am with many other franchises. And I think, to an extent, San Antonio was here the last couple of years because of Pop, is— I don't think every team it's it's championship or bust for everybody. I, I really don't. But if you're going to be on the bottom end, you might as well go after it full force. And I think Rafael Stone deserves a lot of credit for drafting and keeping and likely playing four first round picks this year for bringing in Tice, who's going to kind of going to help things. And so they didn't, you know, they're not trying to chase the dragon like all those teams in the bottom of the East and the West. They're just, they're just them. Yeah, I mean, anytime you're bringing in four first rounders and projecting to play all of them, much less, you know, this is going to be their first full season with Kevin Porter Jr. too. There's just not a lot of hope that that's going to be a playoff team per se, but there's a lot of hope in the long-term projection of what the Rockets can be. And some of that is just the pure volume of prospects that they now have at their disposal and that they can evaluate and they can package and figure out who fits best together and who works well and who doesn't. They have, you know, if we look at every draft pick as a roll of the dice, as a gamble on its own terms, they have maybe more rolls of the dice than anyone else right now, especially in this division. This is a, a division that by and large is, you know, some some younger teams that are trying to build like more veteran teams like the Pelicans have been or teams like the Spurs who just don't have a lot of high upside players right now necessarily. Uh, the Grizzlies are kind of walking that line. I think they've made some really smart bets in terms of borderline guys or like Zaire Williams in the draft, like guys who could be really interesting for them long term, but might not be there right now. And the Mavericks are basically, you know, betting the farm on Luka and his long term development, which I think makes a lot of sense. But the Rockets are in that space where we don't know quite what their future is going to look like, uh, but there's just so many different players you could pin it to. It can't help but be interesting in that way. I think, too, it's like you got to take your medicine sometimes. Like right now, the Harden era is over. Houston's taking their medicine. Everyone knows the next two years are going to be kind of tough. But what San Antonio did is almost worse. I think it's worse because now they're still in the same place they were three years ago. And they don't have any high oxygen talent, really. So now they have to take their medicine after losing a lot already. It's like at a certain point, you just got to go for broke and start over. Because you can't just do something over and over again. I, they also I, uh, they don't even have enough airspace there, too, to... To facilitate all the young talent that they do have like they you would think for a team that's losing to Marta Rosen who just absorbed so much oxygen and touches and minutes and Patty Mills who is such you know such an important piece of that team that you'd be looking at this roster and saying okay now is the year that all of these guys are finally going to get their opportunities and I still don't see that like I still don't see a clear pathway for Devin Vassell to be a, an impact meaningful high minute player even though I'm really high on what he could be it just I don't know if he's going to get that opportunity with all these guys ahead of him. 
Well, and how are they going to square DeJounte Murray and Derek White? It was a question we wondered about a lot last year, and then Derek White had such a weird season, mostly due to injury, and so we're kind of still piecing that together. And then they're the huge spacing questions, like they added Thaddeus Young, who I really like as a player. I think he's good. But are you going to play Thaddeus Young and Jakob Pertl together, and then some of these guards that are limited shooters? Like, it's... The Spurs, this, so there are two kind of things for the Spurs. I think, Rob, you did a great job of articulating the first one, which is basically that they don't, there's still too many mouths to feed, or at least like the mouths are in weird places. And then the other one is San Antonio, like one way of thinking about it is I actually think this could be a pretty good team if they had somebody at the kind of the top of the pecking order. Like I think that I've brought this up years ago with the Orlando Magic, where they have a lot of players that I think could be a good part of a good team but they can't be the best player. And the challenge for San Antonio is they're too good to get that player. Like they're free agency is just a tough path for it. And the draft, like a, it's going to, even if you get somebody like, let's say you jump up and you get the next Cade Cunningham, it's going to take him probably a couple of years. So San Antonio is kind of in the spot where it's like, okay, the, everything could make sense. Like, I think they have a really nice defensive foundation and offensively, it's not that far from working, but it's far enough that you can't, I don't think you can expect it with internal improvement. So they're just kind of floating. Danny, I got to be honest. I'm still wondering and visualizing what it means for someone or something to have too many mouths in the wrong places. Yeah, I'm thinking sea creatures, (laughs) but I don't know exactly. (laughs) Uh, So, like, I mean, yeah, so so I would say, you know, the Spurs, they got worse. I mean, they lost a lot of they lost a lot of players and that's that's not terrible for them. But I also don't in some ways, I don't think they got worse enough. Like I but. San Antonio may benefit. It'll be interesting to see how how this season goes to them. Like I think there's a chance that they sneak into the play in mix and maybe even the play like just because I, I think their defense is more legit in certain ways than the but I'm concerned, of course, about the offense. But what what could end up working out really well for the Spurs, and there are a couple different teams that I think fit this description overall in the league, is that so many teams trying to win might open up the path that if you try to win for the first four months of the season, and you just don't get quite enough wins, then instead of being like the eighth worst record or something like that, where your lottery odds are, you know, they're better now than they were before, but they're not great. But like, they're basically only like four or five teams that aren't trying this year. So if you fall, if you fall earliest of everyone else, and you maybe you fall a little bit harder, I actually think you could end up in an okay spot. But remember what we're talking about in terms of the Spurs needing those really good players, and those are still hard to come by. Yeah, I mean, it's just so weird. I think we're still kind of figuring out what it looks like to rebuild, given the new lottery odds. You know, like in Memphis and New Orleans, to get that number one, number two in 2019, it was just pure luck. Yeah. Right? And it's like, what? I don't even know if you're a team like San Antonio. If Oklahoma City, they went one in 30 in the last two months. They had the number six pick. It's like, how do you, you just no way to know how to get, it's, just, it's so much more luck to pen out than it used to be. That's kind of the irony of the whole lottery situation is the NBA went to such great lengths to de-incentivize tanking, but what they incentivized is randomness. Like It it just kind of arbitrarily assigns great players sometimes or great prospects to whatever young team happens to hit the ping pong balls. I understand that's that's part of the process, but it's not exactly a a perfect alternative either. Well, and it's hilarious because, so I wrote, when I I wrote a book on the Warriors, the, the one that really affected them was back when Orlando won the lottery two years in a row. And that's how they ended up with Shaq Penny, but they traded down with the Penny Hardaway, you know, the Penny Hardaway pick. They got him. They didn't get him number one. And that's when the league is like, because Orlando wasn't even that bad the first time. Like, I think they were something like 
fifth or sixth, if memory serves, the two times they won. And it's like, oh my God, we created the super team, but they didn't have to get all the way. And so they're like, okay, now we need to make it so that the really bad teams, the really bad teams have a better chance of getting it. And then after, you know, the Sixers and a few other things, they're motivated to switch it back. And I I think that that could lead to some real problems. Like, I mean, Oklahoma City is, is a really good example. I'm happy that you brought them up because they're they're doing something. I mean, Shea is better than a, like he's a brighter part than a lot of the Sixer stuff, partially because Joel Embiid was hurt. Um, and so maybe that changes things a little bit. But I mean, they might be there another couple of years. And if you're down in the bottom another couple of years and you never get that premium pick, then where are you? I mean, you better drop well where you are. That's where. Yeah. I mean, Josh could yeah. be pretty good. <laughs> yeah, I was actually. I, I was funny for a, a moment of time when I was doing the when I was thinking about this division. I'm like, oh great, I really want to hear John's thoughts on Josh Giddy because I didn't get to watch film on him. I'm like, wait, the Thunder right here. So, John, your thoughts on Josh Giddy, even though he's not in this division? <laughs> I'm not sure. I think I didn't get to watch a ton of him either. I'm a little worried about him though, just because he's not fast. He's not a great shooter. I, to, to I think he's still fair game though. I mean, the the Thunder are honorary South. West Division, you know, competitors. I mean, geographically, they probably should be, considering yeah. everything. I mean, they're... Well, it, technically, Oklahoma, Texas going to the SEC, right? So, Southeastern. Oh, if the NBA goes to the NBA goes to college, it goes to like the college realignment, and it's just like these like eighteen team eighteen team divisions, and then you also have conferences. That'd be fun. I'm looking forward to the three Texas teams, OKC, and then Miami and Orlando as the new new division to compete for. Yeah. Oh, oh, God. Um, and so, like, yeah, I mean, it, it's it, the, the Southwest is a weird division in the respect that you you have all that. No, I think this is a good way to transition into like the second question is a move that stood out. And I think the one that we should start with is the trade, the significant trade that happened with two teams in this division. Um, and so just to walk people through the terms, because it happened basically a month ago, uh, a little bit over that, the Pelicans traded Stephen Adams, Eric Bledsoe, the number 10 pick and the number 40 pick, and then a future first. Um, that was a, La- a Lakers pick. Um, to the Grizz for Valanchunas, 17 and 51. So they moved down in the first and the second round to swap Adams and Bledsoe for Valanchunas. And I'm like, I, I, I think that that Charks explained it well before of it's like, you know, the team that was better last year got worse and the team that was worse last year got better. And it's weird for that respect. But it also like, I think that I think that it like it makes the Pelicans roster make a little bit more sense. I I think that's one way to distill it for me. I mean, I think for sure, like the number one thing that problem last year was Bledsoe and Adam. It's just straight addition by subtraction from the start. And it's like, I wonder, I mean, how much rope do you think Griffin has left at this point? After he, he got his main acquisition, fired his host. He's a hot seat. Like, he has to last this year and lose his job. There's definitely going to be pressure on him. And some of it comes from, you know, the sequential nature of these moves. You know, Eric Bledsoe seemed like the kind of player to me who they took on thinking, okay, we'll see what he looks like in our system with our team, and eventually we'll flip him for something else. You know, like he he's a he is a means to an end ultimately, and not really a long term piece of our franchise. But his value just cratered to the point where they had to shoehorn him into a deal like this one just to get rid of him. And at the same time, I think what offsets some of the whatever gains they're making in the Jonas Valanciunas, Stephen Adams, Eric Bledsoe 
Lonzo thing. They're also just straight up losing Lonzo Ball, who was right. a pretty important part of their team. Um, and we can talk about how they're replacing him with, you know, the Devontae Graham separate acquisition and then the Tomas Sadoransky Garrett Temple thing, all of, all of whom I think are pretty good players. But they're giving you a very different thing than Ball did and, and taking away a lot of what made his role on that team so exciting. Right. And so the way I would, I was thinking about this before we got, the way that I would describe where the Pelicans are is I think they're probably a little weaker from a talent perspective, but that they fit a little bit better. And that gets into what, what John was saying in terms of the Adams, Bledsoe stuff. I think that like, so one weird thing is that last year I thought Valanciunas was a better player than Adams. I thought that he was better defensively, you know, and an underrated part of Memphis's game offensively with the offensive rebounds and everything else, also a good screener. But I don't have a read yet on whether that's just the way things are moving forward or whether that was it. That was more anomalous. And Adams was in a much more difficult defensive situation than Valanchunas was. And so maybe like, and, and that could lead to Adams looking better, you know, this year than Valanchunas did. You know, even the context is always important, but it can sometimes be hard to, hard to suss out. And, you know, taking away Lonzo Ball and giving those minutes more to Devante and maybe Nikhil Alexander-Walker and Kyra Lewis and, you know, kind of shifting the rotation. Like, I think Lonzo Ball is is a better overall basketball player. But if you wanted some playmaking from those players, if you wanted somebody who could, you know, make it so that Brandon Ingram is taking different shots, something like that, because he took a, just a ridiculous amount of contested twos last year, maybe having somebody like Devontae next to him can change that dynamic a little bit because he can create in the half court, he can catch and shoot. So it's... It's a challenge, and I, I think to me one of the most interesting parts. But actually, I'll let I'll let you guys answer on that, and then I'll say the other part of my theory of a, of their off season. Well, I have a quick over under for you guys on that front. Last season, the Pelicans were twenty third in defensive rating. Do we think they're going to be better or worse than that, given these this personnel shakeup? Ooh, that's a good question. I would say about the same. Would be my guess. Yeah. I'm pulling up right now whether they're um, – I, I can't remember whether they had any significant shooting luck, good or bad, last year. I know they gave up a ton of threes, um, but I'm trying to remember. Okay. Some of that was schematic. I mean, so, yeah. So, so okay. So the Pelicans last year, their opponents gave up um, – I mean, their opponents shot 38.5% from three. That was one of the best rates in the league. And, um, and that that's league average was – the median was 37. So that's, you mm-hmm. know – and it's, uh, that's a point and a half there. But in terms of talent, I I think they got a teeny bit worse. Like, I thought I just said, I think Valanciunas was better than Adams. But, I mean, Bledsoe's, he was, the last year was his worst defensive year of his career. But I think Bledsoe and Ball, they're better, like, than I would expect from Graham, Lewis, Sato, you know, like that. I mean, but having more Najee Marshall, who I think will be a much bigger part of the rotation, like he was towards the later part of the year. Like there are some things there, but I would say overall their defensive talent is worse. So then if you want to say maybe some regression of the mean, maybe. But yeah, I mean, I would say if I'm going to pick it, oof, picking that. I mean, I think that's a really good line. I'll I'll say they'll, I'll say they'll finish a little bit better, but I don't feel good about it. Yeah. And the wild card there is just what the coaching change does, you know, in moving from Stan Van Gundy to Willie Green. Uh, you know, I think Van Gundy, in terms of his expectations and the system he wanted to run defensively, put that team in a weird spot from the start. And so if, if Willie Green comes in with very different ideas, and I think more importantly, very different execution of those ideas, maybe there's some room for them to figure out something. But this is this is not a heartening roster defensively in terms of personnel. I think the big question is, is Devontae Graham going to start at point guard? I would assume so, right? The sixth man. I don't know. I mean, they might start Sadoransky and the ball to Zion. Yeah. And Devontae staying at the same six 
rolling at in Charlotte. That would determine other positional size. But I think also with New Orleans, let's not miss the forest to the trees. This is Zion year three. Like, yeah. That's the big thing. Mm-hmm. I mean, he was incredible last year once he became like the point forward-ish. And if you expect more growth from the new season, I mean, Scott's a little more like... Is he a top 20 player? Probably, right? He's an elite player already in year three. And what he could do this year is kind of off the charts, really. Yeah, I think that's a great point. And the idea that all of this other stuff is window dressing because if Zion plays the way he did the second half of last year, or even better, which is totally plausible, that all of this stuff just kind of get all this stuff just fades away. I mean, last year they were... 12th on offense. I mean, and, and he was an absolute wrecking ball. If you can push that to like sixth or something, then if they're even treading water on defense, then we're talking about more of a clear cut playoff team, which is, which is wild. And so, yeah, I, I think that's a great, a great way to kind of think about it is that because I, when I, when I said that it's talent in talent out, like that's kind of one way of who got better, who got worse. The component that goes then to the side that you kind of have to consider if you're really getting into it is internal improvement and then like injury related stuff. So if a team was really healthy, maybe they're a little less healthy. If a team was really hurt, they're maybe a little bit healthier this year. And internal improvement for the Pelicans is fascinating because Zion is going to take on this larger role. They can kind of, and that's why the also why the pieces fitting together I think matters a lot for the Pelicans because now maybe they have a little bit better spacing around him. They can they can fit some of these things together. So I think that I'm really thankful that you brought that up. Um, the other interesting, this is the wrinkle I, I, I was going to mention before that I think is so fascinating about the Pelicans is I think part of what David Griffin did this offseason was he bet on some of the young guys that he has drafted. You know, it looks like the intention is for Nikhil Alexander-Walker and for Kyra Lewis and some of those guys to play a lot more. Like, I think they're... And, and maybe Josh Hart will kind of see where that goes. I don't, I don't exactly know with him. Their rotation is still kind of a mess. And that led to this circumstance where the, the Pelicans didn't do... Like, I think part of the reason they didn't, like, spend everything they had, like, you know, go deep into the mid-level, like, they're well under the tax right now. Maybe some of that was saving money. I don't know where Gail Benson is and everything else like that. But another part of it might have been, like, well, where's this person going to fit in? You know, like, I call... Like, the Atlanta Hawks are probably the best example of that, but the Hawks are better than the Pelicans. Um, and so I think that David Griffin, you talked about, Rob, how he's on the hot seat. I agree with you, firmly. Um, and I mean, there aren't that many other levels to pull, as you mentioned, but making the bet at that point when you're on the hot seat of like, okay, I need to build the best possible team saying, oh, the guys I drafted are already good is fascinating because that's almost never the lever that anybody pushes. And I think they have room to do that because so many of those guys have already started to show flashes, whether it was late last season, whether it's in spots last season, like even a guy like Jackson Hayes looks so much more like an NBA player now than he did a year previous. So you, you do have enough prospects in the door. The question is, do all those guys, as we've been alluding to, fit together in a way that makes sense and fit together in a way that still allows you to facilitate Zion being Zion. Like that is still, as we're talking about, the most important thing is what is Zion's you know chart for development? How does that change the trajectory trajectory of your franchise? You know, they have similar questions to the Mavericks in a lot of ways with Luca, and it, it's is so much about maximizing that one guy. I'm not sure that their surrounding talent is like the perfect fit next to Zion, but it may well be good enough for them to be a playoff caliber team. I and mean, I think the biggest point of optimism, like there's not any more any bad shooters on the perimeter, right? Like, all the guys who are going to play can shoot this season for New Orleans. Yeah. As opposed to the last couple of years. you got to guard all those guys. So that should make Zion even better, just on that alone. 
Yeah, I'm looking up. I'm looking up Nikhil splits last year. Yeah, he was about thirty five percent. I mean, I'm I I've always I've always liked Nikhil Alexander Walker. We also don't know how much he's going to. I think he's going to be a significant part of the rotation. It's hard to figure out. Uh, let, let's get to the Mavericks coaching change. I think that's one of the other ones. You know, for say talent in, talent out is one part of it. But going from Rick Carlisle to J- Rick Carlisle to Jason Kidd is certainly an adjustment. I have no yeah, idea. I mean, this, Go ahead, John. I was going to say there's been a lot. Like for much the Mavs had the same. Like new GM, new coach. It's a new day in Dallas. Like it's a lot. It has been a lot of changes off the court. And I don't. I, yeah, it's hard to know how it's going to go. But it does really feel like the Carlisle Lucas thing had reached an end. I just don't know if Jason Kidd was the best solution to that problem. But it was a problem that had to be addressed one way or the other. Yeah, I think a lot of the value in Jason Kidd specifically has a lot less to do with Jason Kidd and more just with the newness of refreshing the voices that are in, you know, Luca's ears and the team's ears that are influencing that team. It's it's just the the novelty of that more so than anything really inspiring about Jason Kidd's track record as a head coach. But it's been a minute, to be fair, since he's had that role. Maybe maybe he'll be different this time around. Maybe he'll uh, take a different tact. We'll see. I mean. <laughs> It's going to be interesting to see just because with Luca, I don't know how much there is to adjust his role specifically. You can do some things with the offense. You can, you know, try to get some other guys, <clears throat> try to get some other guys involved in different ways. But fundamentally, he's still going to be the centerpiece of that team and whatever kind of offense it's running. It's just a matter of how you're kind of accessorizing around him. Right. And so there are kind of two parts of that. One, another one related to that. I mean, it's easy to think about it offensively with Luca and how heliocentric it was. And, and there aren't that many ways that that changed. You know, they kept Tim Hardaway Jr. They didn't they didn't really dramatically overhaul the roster. And then the other one is this isn't a particularly defensively versatile roster either. It's not like they're and, and I think in some ways that could be beneficial for Jason Kidd. One of the parts that drove me craziest about his Bucks tenure was that I didn't think he properly used the personnel. And there being less creative wiggle room for for the Mavericks there because I mean they have these big guys they can't really switch they you know they I think you like you kind of need to play some version of a drop coverage unless you're going to do some zone stuff but you know like you're not going to go into some of those so okay maybe that's going to be okay for kid and then the other part of it is yes I firmly believe that when Jason Kidd was fired by the Bucks he was the worst coach in the NBA but I think this last couple of years has been a great reminder that just like players, coaches don't stay the same forever. And I mean, I was, yeah, I think Nate McMillan did a better job with the Hawks than he did and he did with the Pacers and previously in his career. And I think that Monty Williams is a much better coach now than he was earlier in his career. And so I'm not saying Jason Kidd is definitively going to be a Tiger with new stripes, but it's a possibility. And that doesn't mean I think he was the right coach. I absolutely don't. But it is a like I, I want to acknowledge that because it's not like okay you know like you drafted this guy like it, maybe it's more like a player where you drafted this guy three years ago and he stank but then he went and played in Europe and he figured things out and now he's like different maybe he's better maybe he's not so maybe he won't cancel Christmas shout out to <laughs> <laughs> but I I am curious what y'all think about this. I think I'm higher in the maps offseason than most people I think those are really great signings Reggie Bullock and Sterling Brown. Just giving them three more three and D players. I don't really think it's that complicated. I mean, if you have Luca, he needs guys who can space the floor for him and who can defend for him. And those guys can both do that. And that's really maybe all you need. I mean, this guy averaged like thirty five points with the Clippers. Like, how far away is this team really from being a contender in the West? I don't think it's far at all. Just off Luca defense and shooting. Yeah, I'm I'm pretty into what they did just from the perspective of they didn't address some of their biggest needs. But they did enough to improve the shooting where those biggest needs just don't matter as much. Like we can 
and fret all we want about secondary ball handling, but if Luca is going to be that good, as John said, it, the rest of it just isn't that important. Yeah, I, and I mean Reggie Bullock is a, a a very good a very good shooter. I don't know that he's going to be quite as ridiculous as he was with the Knicks last year, but I mean forty one percent last year for him on about six a game. But he is a very good shooter. He's shown that over the course of his career, and he's going to get really good looks playing next to Luca and. I I'm so the how far are they from being contender to me the biggest thing is is defensive improvement I, I think that's just and they, they I would say their defensive talent improved marginally but they just didn't change that much and I was excited about the possibility of somebody like Spencer Dinwiddie. Like, the, yeah, the secondary ball handling matters less. But I also, like, Dinwiddie, when I got into his splits and I was really interested that he was a much better catch-and-shoot guy than he was pull-up from three. And when I was kind of thinking about a shot that kind of made sense to me, where not only the ones he takes, but, I mean, so then if you put the ball in his hands less, maybe he becomes a little bit more effective comparatively there. Uh, and, you know, he's not incredible defensively, but he's interesting, has a, has a lot of positional size. Um, so that, I mean, and the defensive part of it, I mean, I'm sure a big part of the appeal of Porzingis back when Donnie Nelson acquired him was the offensive fit, but he's going to need to take a step up. And if it, if, if he can be the rim deterrent that he has been at other points, then Porzingis, I'm not saying he's going to be the anchor or in the defensive player of the year conversation, but I don't think the Mavericks need to get to like top five to be a contender, but I do think they need to have those moments where, okay, it's they're, they're four points down with two minutes to go. They need to get two more stops than the other team gets. Can they do that? And and they didn't last year, and I think maybe they can this year. And there's the KP thing. Is like He's actually helped this offseason for the first time. I think in his career, this is his first healthy offseason. So we'll see. But I think at the very least, you have lineups now like Bullock, Brown, Finney, Smith. You can just play bigger, longer players around Luka, three or four of them together. And they could actually play some switching lineups. It just wouldn't be with Porzingis. Like, I mean, and, or, or maybe you just trust him a little bit on an island. You say they're not going to, you know, they're not going to destroy him completely. And I mean, I've been a Moxie Kleba believer for a couple of years now, and he had a, he had a rough go of it with COVID and, and, and injuries last year. I thought he didn't look like quite like himself, even though he hit more shots than he did two years ago against the Clippers. So maybe there, maybe there are more options here than I'm thinking. Well, plus, I mean, especially if we're talking about who's going to be better and who's going to be worse. The Mavericks were probably the most COVID affected of all these teams last season in terms of it just it wiped out a big chunk of their rotation right around the new year. And once all those guys came back, their defense trended a lot closer to a league average versus disastrous. And so if you're getting if you're starting from kind of a league average place defensively and you're getting that healthy Porzingis and you're bringing in some more wing depth, there's a recipe here for something. You know, I don't want to be overly optimistic about them being a transformed team, but just on last season's pace, they were already based basically like a 48-win team on a normal 82-game season, it's not crazy to think that could be a 50-win team this season. And I think what I look at, too, is with the playoffs, right? The last two years, they've probably faced the one team that is most equipped to defend Luka and the Clippers. If you put them against the Nuggets or some of the Jazz or some other team like that where they can really attack matches, I mean, Luka's just such a dynamic player in a playoff setting. 
I could see this team winning one or two series pretty easily if the, if the cards play and if they put their defense around them. I just don't think they're that far away, given how special Luka can be in a playoff setting. We've already seen that already. Well, yeah, I mean, Luka, uh, I think Rob and I talked about this during the playoffs. I mean, it's hard to think of a player who, and maybe people who could go back further, I think this happened to MJ, but like a player who impressed more into one and done playoff series than Luka. I mean, he he did everything basically that, that, that we could ask of him against maybe the toughest talent competition when you think about specifically defending him. And he wasn't the reason they lost. And I mean, yeah, the Clippers didn't make the finals in either year, but part of that, I mean, especially the last year was that they got hurt and they, um, and, and, the, but the Mavericks played, you know, closer to a full strength version of them. So yeah, I, I think that the idea that the Mavericks, you know, if we're, if we're judging this based on playoff performance, that they could have gone further either of the last two years is definitely a fair one. This feels like the West in general is pretty open after the Lakers. Like, no one really, I don't think, really scares you that much. We'll see. Yeah, that, that is an interesting question. Uh, the one team we haven't talked about as much in this is the Grizzlies. And the, I mean, I've generally thought that Zach Kleiman, the front office, has done, a, has done a very good job. And Memphis, I think that their talent got worse. I mean, they lost um, they lost some players that I like, including Valanchunas, of course, who, who did well for them. And also the interesting move where they basically dumped Grayson Allen. And I think part of that, um, the analogy that gets used sometimes is taking the club out of the bag, where it's basically like, okay, if you think Taylor Jenkins is playing Grayson Allen too much, one way to resolve that is to trade Grayson Allen. But I also think, so I think the Grizzlies got worse from a talent perspective. I mean, but I also think that they didn't get that much worse. And I think that it, if they can be reasonably healthy, I mean, basically Jaron Jackson Jr. didn't play last year and also internal improvement. I mean, you know, a lot of the guys on this team are young and the guys that are older aren't so old that you think they're going to fall off a cliff. So I think the Grizzlies simultaneously downgraded in talent, but are, will be a better team than they were last year. Yeah, not to step on future questions, but the Jaron Jackson Jr. thing is just so crucial and so potentially transformative, not just in terms of getting him on the floor, but getting him in a position where he can start to take steps forward in his career. He's just he's had these frequent injuries that have really derailed his progress. I want to see what he can be defensively for them. And if he can fill a more versatile role, if he can start to you know give them some of what they need in terms of flexibility in their coverage, you know, that even even aside from all the value he gives you as a as a stretch big and as a spacer and a guy who can put the ball on the floor, all that stuff is great. But the potential to get a guy back like that who, as you said, barely played at all last season, didn't look like himself when he did play, that's huge. That's an addition in itself beyond you know bringing in Stephen Adams or you know this kind of fringe trade to get Jared Culver or anything like that. Yeah, I mean, I remember in the bubble, he was making some crazy plays off the dribble where it was just yeah. so exciting, and boom, he gets hurt. And then basically this whole year is a wash. So, yeah, it's hard to know where he is right now, but he's really the whole franchise. Like, if they're going to be a long-term contender, it's all about him well, yeah, I, I, getting better. I mean, Jaw's been fantastic and will continue to grow, but the question is, like, who can be the number two? And the Grizzlies do have some potential spending power next summer. It really depends on what happens with Jared and extension and what kind of a deal they can agree to because he has that he has a gigantic cap hold. But I wanted to bring up this point. So, in 1920, Jaron Jackson played 57 games, played over 15, 1,600 minutes. He made 39% of his threes and took six and a half per game. Like that, if, like if you could do that, I mean, even at the four, that's really valuable. But if he could theoretically do that, the five, then you're really cooking with gas. And 
that was something the Grizzlies really missed last year. And I, I thought that they, you know, and, and it's so weird because Memphis, at one point, it's like, oh my God, their cup runs over in terms of front court talent. But when Jaron was basically out for the year, a lot of guys were in a little bit of awkward spots. And I thought some players stepped up and, you know, they, they, I would say the season went pretty well for them overall. But, it does add something different, and maybe that makes it puts Brandon Clark and Xavier Tillman and even who didn't play last year with them, Stephen Adams, in a better situation to succeed. But I think the way we're talking about Jackson is indicative of the difference between a prospect like John Morant and a prospect like Zion Williamson or Luca. You know, there's just a different category here in terms of upside where Luca and Zion, I think the sky really is the limit. We don't even know how to project those guys. They're already superstar level players. Ja is at like a fringe all-star kind of level right now, but I don't know that we're really expecting him to make another leap forward, you know, be a dramatically different player. You know, if he can unlock some of his shooting, if he could work on some of that in addition to what's already a really strong driving and in between and read and react game if you can improve defensively there's certainly some room for improvement there but it's just a different world when you're the grizzlies and you know this is a team that has drafted well that has been pretty savvy and pretty canny in terms of the acquisitions and the trades that they're making um and it's they're still kind of living and dying a little bit with whether jaron jackson jr is a transformative player or not or if he's just going to be another pretty good player in this stable of pretty good players that they've acquired that's that's really the whole ball game for them in, in that margin of difference yeah, I mean, it just goes back to, you know, Jaws six foot two, six foot three, and Zion and Luca are obviously much bigger. Jaren's even bigger. If your friend's player is so small, it kind of limits you a little bit. And I think it's worth going back. It's pretty fascinating what they decided to do this offseason in terms of tra- using our draft, using our uh, cap space to up in the draft. You don't see that too often, where a team is like, I'm a, they're a playoff team. But instead of like going all in the playoffs, we're going to look three to four years down the road and try to go for a high upside young guy like Zaire Williams. I feel like that's a very, very rare thing to do. And we'll see how it works out. But the idea makes sense. We need more size in the perimeter. Going after a six foot eight guy who can play two or three positions. But we're willing to take a step back now to like possibly improve and down the road. It's pretty unusual for a team in their position. It is. And I mean, I thought Zaire Williams was intriguing. He's very skinny um, with where, where he's going to go. And it's also funny because I thought that Trey Murphy, who New Orleans moved down and selected, looked very good. They're, they're not the You're not drafting them for the same type of thing. And like if, if Trey Murphy could, he's older, he had the time at UVA, like maybe he could step into the rotation more quickly. Who, who the hell knows what happens with New Orleans rotation with Willie Green. But like... You're right that the idea of using kind of using your financial flexibility to move up in the draft and not in the way of like taking on a truly like awful contract. I mean, I think of Adams and and Bledsoe as negative value contracts, but then they got off Bledsoe pretty cleanly with the Clippers. Um, And and so I think that they were able like it wasn't it was a worthwhile thing, especially when you consider how weak this free agent class was. And so it's it's all opportunity cost. It's okay. You chose you chose door number one. What was door number two? And it's like, yeah, if they had, you know, ten, fifteen million dollars in cap space, could they have gotten somebody better? And maybe, like, maybe they could have, but I don't think it would have been, you know, the same kind of bright, you know, the idea of like Zaire Williams. And I think they expected somebody different to be available, whether that was Josh Giddy or, or somebody else. Like just the it, it, based on the reporting that existed at the time, it, it's there. But like, OK, what could they have gotten with 15 million? Like, is Will Barton better than rolling the dice on Zaire Williams? Hi, I don't think so. I mean, in that case, you don't have to give up Valanchunas and all that. But yeah, it's definitely a different bet to be sure. 
like, let's talk to you saying about David Griffin. It's like, we're a small market. We're going to live by the draft. We're going to die by the draft. And the Grizzlies, I mean, they've earned the benefit of the doubt. Because, like, if they had a bad draft pick, I was taken over. They pretty much all hit for the most part. Yeah, we'll see on this draft. I mean, Sante Aldama, I, I wasn't super impressed with him. You're going... But it's, I mean, they've done well. I mean, you're right, but in terms of earning the benefit of the doubt, and I'm a big DeAnthony Melton guy who wasn't technically a Grizzlies draft pick, but they kind of acquired him in the way that he was a draft pick. I mean, I think we're all DeAnthony Melton guys. We are bloggers. Like, everyone loves <laughs> DeAnthony Melton. If you know, you know. Uh, so, I mean, we'll, we'll kind of, I think we'll, we've got, we covered a lot of this ground with, with the other questions, but like, um, we'll start with Jonathan. Uh, who, do, who's, who do you think is the best newcomer to his team in this division? Let's get quite um the best newcomer. Let me think about that. Um yeah, there's not a lot of big newcomers coming in this year, really. I would say probably Valanciunas going to uh, New Orleans. I think that's a massive upgrade from what Adams gave him last year. Maybe Reggie Bullitt. Probably one of those two. Yeah, it's it's kind of crazy that Valanciunas is probably the best player to join one of these teams, considering where he's been in his career, what his reputation has been. And I think he's going to be a guy that the Grizzlies miss in a lot of ways, just because he was kind of their mechanism for bully ball against small ball teams. We saw a little bit of, like uh, of that against the Warriors. He he was a really important part to that kind of drive and dump element you know this is a read and react drive and kick kind of offense that the Grizzlies typically run with lots of different ball handlers jaw obviously being the lead one but you need a guy who's going to catch and finish really strong inside Adams historically especially since his kind of mid-career injuries have have set in has not really been that guy he's a pretty reticent scorer and so to go from Valanchunas a guy who wants to bully to get to that hook shot who wants to bruise his way inside to Adams I think could be a, a pretty rude awakening on that side of it and, and meanwhile i think the pelicans will really benefit from some of that assertiveness inside i don't really buy him as a spacer i don't really think that's a particularly important part of his game but just by putting a big next to zion who's going to catch with the intent to score i think is a meaningful difference yeah i kind of want to pick jaron jackson jr but that's cheating um a he was already on the team and b he did actually play last year um and bullock i think he could end up being like the most let's call it quote unquote impactful in terms of like if the mavericks make a run to the second or third round of the playoffs then he would probably be a significant part of that but that's just more grading on a curve because the mavericks are are in a different place um so the rookie we're most excited to see, I'm guessing for all three of us, is Jalen Green. Um, he was absolutely tantalizing in Summer League. I love the, the film of him uh, in, on the G League Ignite. And I am i don't think it's a guarantee that he's going to be like an undeniable superstar. But I i, I mean, the tools are fans. They are just, just awesome. I think my question for Green is how much is he going to get to play with the ball in Houston? Given yeah. that John Wall's there and Kevin Porter's there. That's, I think, is the big question. It's just like, how do you divvy that up and what's the best role for him? Is it as like an off ball two? Or cause like he can run pick and rolls pretty well, it seems like. So I like to see him run pick and roll to pass sometimes as well, but I'm not sure how much it's going to be possible given the rest of their roster. That's what's kind of exciting about his game, though, is that flexibility. And if, if he hits, if he turns out to be really good in both of those dimensions, then he becomes a really interesting, you know, star or near star to pair with any number of talents who could fit really well alongside him. He becomes, you know, not necessarily in terms of exact skill, but in terms of role, someone like a Bradley Beal, you know, who can do a little bit of both at a pretty high level. That would be an awesome player. We're a long way from that, but just that you can see the glimpses of him as a as an off-ball mover and cutter and, and you know, shooter off the catch, and also some of that pick-and-roll game. He's going to need to work on, you know, continuing to be even more creative and crafty and driving and absorbing contact, all the stuff that rookie guards have to continue to advance over the course of their careers, but he's going to be really fun to watch, and I think this circumstance 
stands in Houston with so many different young guys to play off of. It's it's really entertaining in some ways from like a league pass junkie perspective, but it may be kind of obfuscating in terms of what his ultimate long term potential is going to be. Yeah, agreed wholeheartedly. Um, the the nuance that I think is is really notable for for Jalen Green in terms of like you brought up both of you guys brought up kind of the role that he'll have versus the role that that he he might you might want him to have in the long term is that I think generally fans in particular overstate the importance of like playing time and reps and everything else like that where it's like you know oh if you're not on the floor in NBA games there aren't other ways to do it I remember this came up like I wrote a piece about Cajun McDaniels years ago it's like oh he didn't get many minutes and it might have been because of that it's like no I, I think that you know even with practices and direct coaching and everything else there are a lot of ways to get better however one of the exceptions or at least partial exceptions to my previous statement is on-ball reps as like a creator in the NBA, especially for somebody like Jalen Green, who hasn't done that as much in his career. I mean, in, on the G League Ignite, they deliberately got Jared Jack and Brown, and so they had guys that were that were going to run the show a lot of the time, and Green was more in that off-ball. And I think that I think that is his best role. I think that is what he does, what, what he does that's going to pop. But what makes Jalen Green, like what gives him that really crazy upside, like all-NBA upside, is having the ball in his hands. And I don't think he needs to have it every rep. I don't think he needs to, you know, the having, having him with and without John Wall is going to be interesting. But it is a challenge for Stone and Silas to say, what do we want this guy to do? What do we want his workload to look like? And I I think that they're like having Wall is probably actually a really nice benefit because then it's not just like throwing him, throwing him in the deep end, basically having not been that guy really at earlier points in his career. I, I don't know his high school resume to know well enough to know if Jalen Green did that then. But to be able to go both directions and give him some experience and understand, okay, these are the reads you need to be making, give the coaches, the development coaches film to say, this is what you need to do better, but then also give him the reps the other way. I think that could be really good for Green. Considering that we now have a big man quorum on this podcast with me and John, I, I need to ask, how much do we expect Alperen Shingun to play? Ooh, this is what I'm talking about. He was really impressive in Summer League, and I'm right. really curious to see how he's going to I think this is kind of, you'll see where I'm going with this. Like, I've been thinking of kind of like Sabonis. He reminds me a lot of Sabonis. And like, what do you think Sabonis' role is best, right? Indiana's still figuring it out. Like, in his, he's playing in his career now. Like, is he best with the center like Miles Turner? Is he best at the five? Like, what role makes sense for Sabonis? I think that answers a lot about Shangun as well. I think Shangun, uh, this is a parallel with Sabonis. I think that his competitive advantage offensively. I, I like him most as a, with a quickness advantage. I think that he, like, there were times in Summer League when he had bigger guys on him where he just he just moves really weirdly, and I thought that he was able to draw fouls, he was able to kind of get guys on their back foot, and so that makes it center. Now, can he protect the rim? Can they rebound well enough? I mean, his rebounding individually has been good throughout his career, from what I understand. Uh, so I think you try both, and sort of like we talked about with with Jalen Green, the, the Rockets have centers. Like, I mean, they now have... Christian Wood and Daniel Tice. So I mean Shangun might play more at the four, incidentally, paralleling Sabonis' first year when he was in OKC, where he played power forward and honestly kind of sucked at it. Um and then he moved into something and also improved dramatically as a player between his OKC year and everything else. I I think that the the Shangun eventuality, like the best position for him is the five. But and I also think that the Rockets don't need to care necessarily about wins and losses now. But getting him some reps at the four and kind of seeing how he can fit in a little bit of a more modest defensive role could be a good thing for him. 
And, and whether you want to call it the four or the five, I kind of like the fit with him and Tice together. Tice is a guy who can rotate and, you know, for a guy his size, protect the rim pretty well, like pretty mobile and, and explosive in that capacity, who has some slight stretch to his game to give Shangun room inside if they want to post him up. Again, not that these fits really matter in a win-loss perspective, but just within his long-term development, I think it'd be cool to see him with that kind of player to just to gauge what it looks like. I like the idea of Christian Wood, though, is having more length athleticism around Shengun. If he's not going to be, you know, great size-wise, just have a mm-hmm. seven-footer who can fly around the court. And that's the other thing to watch, too, with Houston is Wood, because he's not quite in the same timeline as everybody else. And we're not really sure how good he is on a good team. I think he's up in, what, like one year or two years? He has two. He has this year and next year, and then he's up. Yeah. And they'll have to decide right then if he's like, a lot. I mean, he'll want a max contract, obviously, right? So that'll, that'll come up pretty soon for them, one way or the other. Well, and then the other guy that kind of fits into this rotation in a, in a weird way is like, I think K.J. Martin's best position defensively is the four. And are they going to try some lineups where KJ's at the four and Shangun is at the five or Tice? Like, that's pretty damn fun. Yeah, they've got a lot of players. It'll be interesting. They're not like a typical rebuilding team. There's a lot of young guys that are interesting. Yeah, like, I, I think that the Rockets... And, and one of the challenges for Rafael Stone is going to be like, so they have these veterans. Can they can they give them minutes? Like do you, like can, as you say, kind of concocting the rotation, but then also potentially shifting things around. Like if if somebody is interested in Eric Gordon midseason, I'm guessing they will take the call. Not guaranteeing that they'll make a trade, but like you could see it shift a little bit. I think it's going to be pretty stable for this year, and then they'll try to make some moves next year when Wall is an expiring contract, Gordon is functionally an expiring contract, and then they'll be closer to understanding what's going on with Christian Wood. Like maybe that's the point where. You you start to separate things out with who's there and who's not and everything else, um, and also like as 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 John brought up the volume of guys that I think are worthy of at least considering for rotation minutes, whether that's worthy because they're good players or that's worthy because they're important parts of the future, like that's going to create some challenges too. Like okay, you want to I mean you have Kevin Porter who played well enough last year. Um, Josh Christopher and Usman Garuba, like maybe you could say they'll get time in the G League or do that, but you also might want to get them up with the big squad. And then Daniel House and Waba, if he's finally healthy, you got like they have a lot of guys. Yeah, I mean, we just brought up Christian Wood for the first time. We haven't even talked about Jay Sean Tate, you know, an all rookie first yeah. guy last season who, you know, is is a cool part of their kind of flexibility and their ability to move some of these guys around uh, defensively and, and manipulate some of those matchups. So they just have a lot going on in a way that not only will it be interesting from a roster perspective, but this will give us a really good glimpse of who and what Steven Silas is as a coach and what he values in terms of shaping that rotation. I think worth pointing out, too, is they have their first round pick for the next two years. And they don't have it for a while. So, like, if they're ever team incentivized to bottom out, it's Houston the next two seasons. Yeah, and then part of what makes it so fascinating from there is that after this is just the way it worked out for their negotiations. So, yeah, they've traded their – it's very, very lightly protected. Their 24 pick and their 26 pick, which go to the Thunder. But then around that same time, they start getting picks from the Nets and maybe from the Thunder and like all these from the Harden from from the Harden trade. And so it's kind of like it's not diversified portfolio; it's just somebody else's. And so we'll see whether that works out. I think the net will now that these guys it looks like they're going to sign extensions. Like maybe they'll still be kind of good, but I mean they could be towards the end of their age curve then too. And so maybe Houston gets like one surprise pick that's actually better than people think. Um, but yeah, that's absolutely fascinating. We we already. Got well, so okay. Any other rookies that are interesting? Uh, I really liked Trey Murphy in summer league. I thought that he looked like a you know like a guy who could step into a rotation. I again, I don't know what the hell Willie Green wants to do, but like I liked him. 
Zaire, I think this is probably going to be more like if he plays well enough, he can get in, but he probably won't. That kind of thing. Yeah, that yes. seems fair to me. Murphy seems the kind of guy who can plug play right away. He's got great size. He's an elite shooter. And that alone gets you pretty far as a rookie. Well, and he does something that the Pelicans could use. Like having a plug and play guy next to Zion is a really good idea. God, I don't know what the hell they're going to do with their rotation. It's so like they have a lot of guys that I like. I mean, Najee, I mentioned earlier, and Nikhil and Kyra, and Garrett, they added Garrett Temple and Sadoransky. Like, I, I, I mean, it also could be just like very much in flux in terms of who's actually playing well. Well, a lot of it is going to hinge on the development we've been talking about and which of those guys are able to take a step. Lots of intrigue, but the Pelicans have had that for a couple of years where it's almost like their roster has too many interesting guys or too many interesting young guys who aren't quite good enough in the ways that they need. If some of these guys can start to pay off in that way, and a lot of that is just going to come down to hitting shots and defending, uh, they could get really interesting really fast. If not, they could find themselves in kind of a similar quagmire to where they've been. I could see Temple and Sadoransky playing a lot, given the stakes this, this season this year for them. That would not surprise me one bit. Go with the vet. Yeah, the, the challenge of the, the tension between coaches and general managers will be very pressing in New Orleans, where it's like, okay, do, how does Willie Green feel about this? He just got the job. Is he did, did he get the job with the idea of, I'm trying to develop this young team, have that kind of rep, or is it best team possible for this year? And with their roster, those could potentially be challenges. I'm sure the hope for David Griffin is that the young guys play well enough that he can just play them instead. But there is no guarantee that that's going to happen, at least as I see it right now. It's possible, but we, we don't know it for sure. Uh, we can shift into the kind of the season preview part of this. We've already gotten into it a little bit, so we can start with Rob, because I, I think John, John already laid his tears out pretty well. Um, I would say if you want to rank these teams one to five regular season success, but you could also kind of do it in tiers if you're more comfortable with that. I mean, I think it kind of breaks down the same way either way. Uh, I think the Mavericks are clearly the number one. And then you have, in some order for two and three, probably the Grizzlies and the Pelicans. I lean toward Grizzlies a little bit. I think in terms of the baseline that they've set defensively, I think will still be there, even if they take a little bit of a step back on offense or something like that. I think they're they're pretty a pretty strong number two. And then four and five, I think the Spurs are going to be better win-loss than the Rockets, although we've all obviously touched on San Antonio's longer-term concerns uh, as far as just the lack of like elite, a, you know, a Jalen Green-level prospect in the door. They don't have that yet, but I think they're going to be a better team win-loss-wise than the Rockets this year. Yeah, it seems pretty clear-cut in terms of the tiers. I, 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 I do think like Memphis makes more sense at number two, but I do just kind of believe in Zion at a certain level, like... I kind of think he's just going to figure it out. This guy's going to put up like 30, 15, and 5 this season, or something crazy like that, and just kind of bully his way to the playoffs. I mean, I, I'm expecting that. I think it's the kind of player he is, and I'm expecting that kind of growth this season with more shooting around him. And so it just might be a – it's kind of the reverse of the Spurs, where you have one guy who's just so good, he kind of makes up for the infrastructure around him. And that's what I'm kind of expecting to see from New Orleans. Yeah, I think New Orleans has a higher ceiling, but they also have a much lower floor. And a big part of that is defense. Like, if, if, if I trusted that New Orleans was going to have the 15th best defense in the league, then I'd be like, oh, it's all about them. But there's there's a lot of potential downside risk here. Um, One point briefly that I wanted to bring up, because I had already pulled the stats on it, is that Rob brought up earlier about, like, New Orleans and, like, the shots that they allowed. And so, like, last year, um, it's something that Clean the Glass does is, like, location-effective field goal percentage. And so last year, the like the Pelicans were giving up shots in places you don't want to give them up. And one interesting kind of parallel with that was the Pacers. So the Pacers, 
they didn't have a great defensive year last year, but part of it was that they got the like their shooting opponent shooting luck really shifted. And so maybe what Willie Green does to an extent is the opponents take shots in better places, better for the Pelicans places. And that gives them a little bit more latitude, but we'll have to see. Um, but so I'll go Dallas one. That's easy tier by themselves. I trust Memphis a little bit more than New Orleans. I agree with John's point that the ceiling for New Orleans is higher. Like the offense is the offense is there, but I mean, and Zion is incredible. And maybe we're just like maybe he is where Luca was a couple years ago. It's just like, well, as long as he's on the team, their offense is going to be damn good. Like it wouldn't stun me at all if that's what we're saying five months from now, not even like six or ten months from now. And then I actually have the Spurs and the Rockets in different tiers, partially because the Spurs have a lot more talent and partially because I think they're going to try, whereas the Rockets, like, that's not their goal. And I think the Rockets are making the correct decision, but I don't think they're going to be... I think they know they're a bottom five team. I think they're good with that. Whereas San Antonio, they're like, well, we could get into the mix. Let's see where it goes. We still have Papa as the coach. So let's see what we can do. Well, with the Spurs, too, we can have the confidence. I mean, I I feel pretty good in saying right now the Spurs are not going to make an in-season trade. So we have a pretty good sense of what that team is going to be and what their parameters are. Now, as to whether... I think the one thing we we haven't really hit on that we don't know is just how much losing DeMar DeRozan is going to impact them. Because I think there's a universe in which, given DeMar's history, given his on-off splits throughout his career, given the way the Spurs have played without him, there's a universe in which they don't really miss him that much. And they're more or less as good as they were last season. And maybe that gives them room if a guy like Derek White, for example, really, really jumps or, or DeJounte Murray or whoever you like in terms of young players on that team for them to, to make a little bit of a step forward. But I think it's hard to get from even that place to competing with the competence, the all around competence of the Grizzlies and just the potential uh, of the Pelicans in terms of what they could be if Zion becomes the player that we all think he can be. Yeah, that's the thing with San Antonio is like, who is going to take that step? it is available for multiple players it's open like who's going to be the main ball handler the primary guy late in games and they just don't have an answer to that right now they kind of have it's like they have too many cooks in the kitchen not any great cooks you know like it's just a lot of guys who are like halfway decent it's a tough place to be i've been in those kitchens before <laughs> yeah it's i i mean here's the other part of it i mean you you're like the offensive i think there's going to be a challenge that somebody's gonna have to pick up slack but they i i think there's like a, a meaningful chance that san antonio is a top eight top ten like defense this coming year and that gives you a lot more runway to be shaky offensively because you're just going to be in games i mean Dejounte is so destructive they don't have that many bad defenders in the rotation now and like mcdermott's not great but he's, I think of him as more like um, low-end functional, like not horrendous in the way that DeRozan was. Um, who's their starting four, do you think? Is it Keldon Johnson? I think they're I think starting Johnson. I think they're starting Keldon and McDermott together, however, and Keldon just takes on the okay. harder assignment. So probably then McDermott's technically the four, because I think generally the harder assignment is more often a three than a four. But yeah, I think it's... Uh, my instinct is they're starting White, Murray, um, McDermott, Keldon, and Pirtle. But oh, I mean, boy. there are other guys that can sneak in there. Thad Young could sneak in there. Uh, Lonnie, Lonnie Walker is just like, are you going to start three guards again? Like, are they going to go that route? I don't, I don't know. Would it really shock anyone if Pop just like started Al Farouk Aminu out of nowhere? <laughs> I mean, if I, I, this is one of the weird things for me. It's like, I still think there's a, a rotation level player in there. He's just been so hurt the last couple of years. Sometimes guys like that, that go through long injuries are just done. So, 
But I think they're like I think he I don't know if he's gonna help the Spurs. Like we think about the limitations he had way back on the Blazers, but I think I mean I still think there's a good player in there. I don't even mind it. Yep. I just mean in terms of them having so many guys already and he just kind of cracks the mix. But I mean, while we're on the subject, shout out to San Antonio for getting a first rounder, Thad Young, oh my god, Gaminu in that DeMar DeRozan trade. Um and I'm I'm already gonna, you know, somewhat walk back my my comment about them not making an in season trade because there's gonna be a market for Thad Young. And if they decide that they wanna move him I think there could be a first-round market for Thad Young. Yeah, I could see that. If well, the Sun, they're saying the Suns wanted him already. They tried a first for Landry Shamit last year, so why not right? do it again? Well, and it could be a situation also, San Antonio, considering they don't have that much on their books moving forward. They could also, maybe how they get a first is they take on some money that the other team doesn't really want. So not only are you upgrading from Thaddeus Young, from Player X to Thaddeus Young, you're also getting off of Player X's money for maybe the 22-23 season or something like that. And I like Young a lot. I And... I'm happy you brought that up because, I mean, to me, the single best transaction that any team in this division made in the offseason was the Spurs part of the DeRozan trade. And they they got a first round pick. DeRozan got his money. They, you know, like and they've kind of folded some other stuff in. I, I thought it worked out fantastically for them. And they, you know, they got this additional resource for not a big commitment for San Antonio. And they, you know, it was an indicator that maybe they're going in the right direction. They, I, I'm also fascinated by like what the intention is with Zach Collins, where they like gave him a, you know, basically they kind of bought two lightly guaranteed years with a fully guaranteed 7 million this year. And I mean, if he can play at, let's say by March of this year, if he's like, oh, there's even a rotation player in there that could end up working out pretty well for them. I'm, you know, when a guy's been hurt this much, I'm always a little bit skeptical, but I mean, he's shown some talent at times. Yeah, I think we're just kind of for sure. He's very talented, but yeah. Yeah, we're just kind of in freeze frame on the if he can play part of that sentence. Yes. Uh, Okay, so then we so we talked about rank the teams. Um, How many teams from this division make the playoffs? And we're going to define that as the the eight teams that play in best of seven series, not who make the play in. But you can talk about that if you want. We'll start with Rob on that Mm. one. This is crazy because this is typically a division where we're talking about three or four playoff teams, typically, with how good a lot of these franchises have been. I think this year there is one playoff team here. I think I think it's Dallas because if we look at who's going to be a lock in the West, or at least a, a lock relative to, to good health and you know given good health, you've got the Suns and the Jazz, you've got the Lakers and the Clippers, you've got the, the Nuggets and the Warriors, and then here you got the Mavs. I think maybe the only variable here is what happens with the Blazers this season and if they eventually trade Damian Lillard or CJ McCollum and what they look like. But I think I would still take Portland to make it over. You know, if I see the Grizzlies as the second best team in this division, I think I would still trust Portland a little bit more over them. Yeah, I think with all these stuff, it's all about injuries, right? Like, there's usually one or two teams every that get knocked out because of injuries. And I yeah. feel like Memphis and the Warrens are one of those teams waiting for someone ahead of them to get an injury thing. I would say the only playoff lock is Dallas. I'd expect one of those two to make it. So I'm going to say two, but it's not a, not many. Well, it usually is. Yeah, because, I mean, part of the argument you could say for it being two, this is a kind of counterintuitive one, is that... They don't have the variance. So, like, for example, I think we all think that there are four teams that have a pretty solid shot in the Pacific of making the playoffs. The Suns, the Clippers, the Lakers, and the Warriors. So that means there's more likely that one of those teams gets injured, whereas just Dallas. Like, yeah, Dallas could get knocked out. And so then probably, I think the Grizzlies and the... The Grizzlies and the Pels are two of the better teams waiting in the wings. So if one of them can stay healthier... So I'm going to say two is more likely than one, even though I think there's only one clear-cut playoff caliber team. But again, that's I think we're all in pretty much the same boat. It's just how we want to how we want to kind of split that up. And 
I mean, the West is just so loaded in terms of playoff caliber teams. And I know there are people talking about, oh, the East is going to be so much, like, the East is going to be so much stronger than it was before. It's like, yeah, look at this. And like, and that includes two of the teams in the West having star players that are, that have torn ACLs and are going to be out for a lot of the year. Like, they're just still that good. I mean, that's different than the East, of course. Um, so then the last question for you guys is, are, are there, what players in this division do you think will break out? And I like to think of that as players that we will be talking about differently a year from now than we're talking about right now. I, mean, I think the main guy is Jaron Jackson, one way or the other. Yeah. I think this is kind of like the big year for him. Either we're talking about him back as like a potential star, or he's become kind of an easy-to-average player who has no next step. But this is a really, really big year for him. I have high expectations, but we got to see it, you know? I mean, he's only played in 56% of the Grizzlies games over his first three seasons wow. of his career. You know, that's pretty rough. And so just just by virtue of getting on the court, staying on the court, and progressing even a little bit, I think would be huge for him. I, I So I have a couple guys that, that stick out, and they're not obscure, but I think that they still have, like, fit the bill. One is Zion. I, I mean, this could be the year that he steps into being a top five, top ten offensive player in the league. Like, I think that's a distinct possibility. He would do it in a different way than somebody like Luka, do it in a different way than somebody like Steph Curry. But he's just a force. And, I, I mean, generally players that are this good, this young, continue to get better. And then the other guy for me, you know, if we're talking about how they're going to look different, is Jalen Green. Like, if Jalen Green can really get to that level, then we're also thinking about Houston's future very differently. I would like to present to you both my galaxy brain take of Jarrett Culver as a breakout player. Wow! <laughs> okay, let's let's couch this in relative terms. I think this is the year where he looks like a real NBA player, which is more than I think we can say of his time with the Wolves. Correct. And a lot of that is because I think he fits in right alongside a really long and active perimeter defense that Memphis has built, and he slots really well into this cycling offense that's been able to make do with lesser shooters, with guys who aren't as reliable on the perimeter because it activates them as drivers instead. And so for a guy who's 22 years old still, we know that the Grizzlies are a good drafting team. I think we're about to find out if they're a good second drafting team in, in taking a shot on a guy like Culver and seeing if he has anything for them uh, that he can offer them. I just don't see many minutes for him. I mean, obviously injuries happen, but right now Memphis is just so deep. So their perimeter, they have Tyus Jones, Melton, and Desmond Bain off the bench. Like, they're just not a lot of minutes for another swing, I don't think. I think Bain's going to start, personally. So um, it would be over Kyle Anderson? Yeah, that's my my instinct is that the, well, oh, we'll really? see. We'll see. I mean, maybe they start. So, oh, yeah, because Jaron's back. That's right. So they don't have that. Yeah, you're right. It might be Kyle and then Bain plays heavy minutes off the bench. That could be. But that's going to that's gonna be the only thing holding Jarrett Culver back, you know, is the minutes crunch. Oh, Otherwise, that, that or the possibility <laughs> that he's still not good. That's, I mean, that, there's that possibility, but we're going to shuffle that off to the side for now. Um, I will mention Moxie Kleba for like the eighth consecutive year because I still think he's good and he might end up being like the crunch time five for the Mavericks, which would be wild. Like if, if he's the like he's the like if they go to something small ball and he's there in the closing five and they make the conference finals like that would be a version of a breakout. Um, yeah, it feels like there's going to be something on Dallas and like I but I don't know. Here's here's the thing. Like it, the answer here might be Luca, just because if he's like undeniable MVP, if there is that other level for him. But I don't even know that that exists. Like I don't know that you can break out further than what he's done. Here's one. I mean, the three of us have been doing these Southwest Division pods for a long time. Do you think you can find like a 2014 or 2015 
podcast of us calling DeJounte Murray a breakout player. <laughs> Probably. Oh, no, sorry. I, I guess he came into the NBA a little later than this. So yeah. Maybe like a 2016, 2017 podcast. But I, st- I still find myself wondering, like, he's 25 years old. Is this the season that comes together? He's kind of had like a nice upward pr- uh, progression over these last two. Maybe this is the year he takes even one more step forward. But just the fact that we probably picked him five years ago means we probably shouldn't now. I hope I picked Jacoperto last year because he had a really good year. Um, I, I I still think it's, it's not a breakout thing, but I, I still think he's he's an under he's not a breakout. He's just an underappreciated player um, who isn't spectacular. Who I don't think is ever going to be a top ten center, but who can really help out a team. Uh, anything else you guys want to discuss with these with these five teams? Or I think we're pretty close to done. Yeah, I like what Rob said about Luke. I think he'll be the MVP this year. That's my guess, anyways. I'm expecting just crazy stats all season. They won like fifty games. I think he'll be the MVP. Yeah, my my kind of operating principle with the Mavericks is that they really could beat anybody. You know, to to do what John said earlier about them winning a series or two, I think in an individual matchup, they could beat almost any team in the league, which makes them incredibly dangerous. My question is just, do they have the sustenance, you know, in terms of their roster composition to make it all the way through a long playoff run? I don't don't think they're quite there yet, uh, just in terms of like saving Luka's legs. We've already seen, you know, what happens to him in some fourth quarters or deep into series. It's just, there's a lot that they're asking of him, but what they're asking of him can beat almost anyone in a one-shot series yeah i'd say luca is my favorite for mvp as well um and the the idea that they can beat every they can beat just about anybody is in there because of the workload and because even though like his workload is crazy going into the olympics and everything else i wouldn't be stunned if the bucks took their foot off the accelerator a teeny bit um with with Giannis. and i mean the suns had you know like the teams that made it really far in the playoffs and then the teams that didn't that have really good players like the lakers I don't think that they particularly care about that. Like, I don't think LeBron is going to, I mean, maybe if he's close a month before the end of, like a month before the end of the season, LeBron starts gunning for the MVP. And like, if Steph wasn't going to win it last year, I mean, Jokic is obviously going to have a strong case as well, but they're missing one of their best players too. So it's, I'd say Luka's the favorite, maybe not the heavy favorite. Actually, I love this MVP field. It's 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 really like wide open. Like there are a lot of guys who are that level of player, even if some of them might not have the resume. Are there any other awards contenders here? I mean, Rookie of the Year, obviously, for Jalen Green. Sure. Uh, the Anthony Melton Sixth Man of the Year ca- campaign starting right now. <laughs> we'll start putting some flyers together. Yeah, I don't, I don't, I don't know. Maybe like some sort of like molten chocolate cake or something for Melton. Um, that that might be hard to do in a package for writers, um, voters. Let's see. I mean, I don't think Pirtle's going to win Defensive Player of the Year. Um, I think he, I, I think I had him fourth on my 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 imaginary ballot last year. Wow. Um, I thought he was he was huge. I mean, he was huge in terms of their like one of the things the Spurs did super well was protect the rim, and I mean, it was seemed like he was an important part of that. Um, I could see um, if the Pelicans have a good year, Willie Green being Coach of the Year. If Zion's yeah. a big step forward and they make the playoffs, that wouldn't make sense. Here's here's a not a necessarily galaxy thing, but I I will say this: there is a non-zero chance that Zion Williamson wins MVP this year. Like that's how good I think he could be. Yeah, and I think MVP is probably two years away, but definitely like in that conversation for sure. I, yeah, and yeah, and and Jalen Green as, as you mentioned for rookie of the year, like that's that's a clear cut possibility, and I, I I wouldn't be stunned at all if he has the best counting stats in this group because um I think the Rockets are gonna let him let it fly, and also like playing with with the time when he's playing with Wall might be a little bit more efficient. 
Um, I think, I mean, I still think Cade is the better player, but I could see Jalen Green winning Rookie of the Year, absolutely. Well, and one other guy we haven't talked about, I thought Jalen Brunson had a pretty credible sixth-man case yeah. this season. Um, not a great playoffs from him, but if he is able to bounce back and play similarly well, I mean, he was one of the most effective pick-and-roll scorers in the league last season. If he has that kind of season again, I could see him getting into that mix. Well, yeah, that's good Hardaway, too. I mean, he was True. in the voting as well. And well, he, he, may, he may be starting. Right there. Maybe, we'll see. I'm not sure that he will start, though. I was just thinking about how funny it is. There, are, there's a lot of rotation questions within this division, like more so than a lot of other ones. Where it's like, oh, you might know this. Like, I don't think we necessarily know the starting five or closing five for basically any of these teams. I don't like it. I don't like the instability. It makes me uncomfortable. <laughs> let me let me put some things in pen on these depth charts, please. <laughs> well, that'll happen in October. We'll, we'll be there. At least, at least now, the the thing that is stable is that the league calendar is back to normal. So, thank goodness for that. Yeah, you guys can get married, man. Yeah. <laughs> well, thank you guys so much for taking time. It was an absolute pleasure. Yeah, it's fun as always. Thanks again to Jonathan and Rob for taking the time to come on. You can read both of them at The Ringer, and you can also listen to them on the group chat podcast. And you can also check, of course, check them out on Twitter at Rob Mahoney and at Jonathan Charks, J-O-N-A-T-H-A-N-T-J-A-R-K-S. And for those of you who are familiar, um, John is dealing with some serious health challenges right now. And for those of you who want to read more, you can check out his, his wife, Melissa, is writing about it at Caring Bridge. The link is in John's Twitter. And if you want to donate, you can You know, f- do whatever, whatever you feel. It's been challenging, but I admire his his courage and his resilience and i loved having him on it was so much fun i I always love talking with with john about everything but especially about basketball and if you want to support the show there are a lot of different ways you can do it you can subscribe you can download every episode as they come in that's great because they're never going to come out on a specific day of the week due to my availability guests that's just how it works so if you subscribe whatever podcast player you have you can get it whenever it's there and also you can help other people find the show whether that's through word of mouth social media in person or writing a rating a review that is another way that people can find it and even though real gm radio has been around for a long time people are still finding it and really do appreciate that you can also check out the other work i'm doing nate and i are still doing dunked on we're at the reduced schedule part of the year but we've done a lot of interesting stuff you know catching up on the ben simmons trade rumors and we did the mock rookie extension podcast with dan feldman and also have some written work at the athletic including a collaborative piece with seth partno on the changing nature of how superstars change teams it was a really interesting concept that we had been talking about and then decided to turn into a piece and i'll have more stuff coming over the next little while so if you have any feedback good bad or indifferent danny larue nba at gmail.com is the way to get it to me if you take the time to write it i will take the time to read it that is an absolute promise i am not the greatest at responding but i do read everything i read it as it comes in and honestly end up reading it two or three times usually just because the way i the way i end up going through emails is a little bit weird but again so if you do that i will read it it matters to me but that is enough for now so thank you so much for listening take care and make it a great day.
love is in the air. And you know who really deserves some extra love? You, that's who. So why not treat your brain to a much-needed recharge with Best Fiends? Best Fiends is the mobile puzzle game that lets you take a mental spa day wherever you are. Immerse yourself in the world of Best Fiends, where you'll team up with a daring band of cute collectible characters to solve brain-sparking puzzles that are nothing short of absolute fun. With thousands of levels and tons of characters and exciting events added all the time, Best Fiends has all the me time you could ask for. So give yourself some extra love with Best Fiends, the perfect mobile game for those who seek to unwind. And if anyone deserves to kick back and relax, it's you. What are you waiting for? Download Best Fiends free today on the App Store or Google Play. That's friends without the R. Best Fiends.